Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Northern Ireland is often considered to be the long forgotten part of the UK. Polling during Brexit often showed that people in the rest of the UK would be willing to see the reunification of Ireland in order to get Brexit done. What followed was the decision of Boris Johnson to rewrite the Irish backstop and change the whole nature of trade between Northern Ireland and the island of Britain. Joining us today to discuss this and more is Dr. Thomas Leahy, a lecturer in British and Irish politics and contemporary history, as well as the author of The Intelligence War Against the IRA. Hello, Thomas. Hello, many thanks for having me along. Pleasure. So I'll start off with a, a nice soft question. Um, what has the fallout of Brexit been on the island of Ireland? And how does that compare, if it does at all, between Northern and Southern Ireland? So I think essentially, if we look at it in Northern Ireland to begin with, the Brexit fallout, the reason it's caused such controversy in Northern Ireland since 2016 is because of how it's interacted with people's notions of things like national identity, but also the constitutional question about whether Northern Ireland remains within the UK or whether it reunifies with the Republic of Ireland and unifies there. And to give you a sense of this, okay, so if you look at it on face value, the Brexit result in Northern Ireland was 55% for Remain in 2016, and then 45% approximately voted to leave. So you look at it at face value, you think, okay, that doesn't seem as controversial as perhaps debates in England and Wales have been related to Brexit, where the margins are much tighter. But the difference is here, if we start breaking that down by the kind of ethno-nationalist national identity groups, then we see a completely different picture. So for example, according to a report from Queen's University Belfast Academics, almost 90% approximately of people who identify themselves as Irish nationalists, who obviously therefore want United Ireland, they voted to remain. In complete contrast, people who see themselves as British Unionists, typically Protestant, they voted 66% in that community for leaving. So when you look at that, that gives you a sense of why this divide has arisen. Then if we try and get a little bit deeper into that, so why has there been disagreement? So how does like the EU question interact with disagreements about the Irish border and the constitutional question. Well, I think if we have a look first, because of the peace agreement in 1998, which is known as the Good Friday Agreement to end the conflict in Northern Ireland, which started in 1969, included in 1998 with the Good Friday Agreement, the UK government pledged in that agreement to not do anything that might alter the position of the border, uh, as they put it, you know, no selfish strategic or economic interest. So for example, that meant agreeing to end the security border with the Republic of Ireland, which was in place due to the troubles, and therefore bring back things like a soft border for trade, which would also allow a soft border for interaction of cultural purposes, economics, etc. The problem was, by then teaming up with the Democratic Unionist Party, who are a Brexit-supporting British Unionist Party in Northern Ireland, under Theresa May from July 2017 to December 2019, the, the, and obviously that was the beginning of Boris Johnson's period as well, that end bit going into 2019 for the last UK election, What that meant was the UK government basically was ignoring the Remain vote in Northern Ireland by going for a hard Brexit. Now, again, for listeners, I'm sure you'd be thinking, well, it's a similar situation with Scotland. So that doesn't seem to be, you know, in some respects, the kind of root answer why Northern Ireland has been so controversial. But again, if we look at it, how either side, you know, there are lots of different communities in Northern Ireland, but as people would know, the two main ones of like Irish nationalism and then Ulster unionism, So we look at it from their perspective, what was going on with this debate. So for Irish nationalists, they were really worried about a hard border being implemented between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, because during the conflict, that was a huge source of friction for local people. It disrupted trade, uh, general economic life, 
cultural life, sporting life, family life, particularly for Irish nationalists who lived on the border and would have a lot of interactions with the Republic of Ireland. So from an Irish nationalist perspective, the soft border, which the EU partly uh, allowed because of the fact that the Republic of Ireland and UK were both members, it allowed for people who feel themselves as Irish nationalists in Northern Ireland to feel that you know, their interactions with national identity isn't stopped by some kind of border yeah, between them and the Republic of Ireland. In contrast, if we look at it for unionists, again, we said particularly those 66% who voted leave from that community. The impression I'm starting to get from just research and various say, speeches by unionist leaders over the years is, you know, I think they began to see an open border as diminishing British identity, culture and the union with the rest of the UK. So leaving the EU, say for the Democrat Unionist Party with a harder border in their heads made sense. Particularly also they see things such as a primary school level again, this is according to the Queen's University uh, Belfast Brexit law report from a couple of years back. Again, if we look at primary school level at the moment, there's about a two to one Irish nationalist majority in future primary school level. Therefore, for unionists, they want to, and particularly Democrat Unionist Party, they're keen to, to kind of find ways and avenues to make it harder to have Irish unification and stop an open border politically was seen as a way of doing that. The last kind of point with this related to Northern Ireland, you know, we talked about the Theresa May period, why was that causing anxiety for unionist nationalists? When we get into Boris Johnson's period and essentially from 20, late 2019, the Brexit deal as it came about, that upset the Democrat Unionist Party, the most unionists and Ulster loyalists. Again, people who see themselves kind of, um, you know, strongly identifying with the UK as a state and Britishness in Northern Ireland. They voted leave and wanted Northern Ireland also at all times to stay in the UK almost at any cost. And they felt betrayed by Boris Johnson because, and as they put it, you know, Boris Johnson in all but name has put the economic border now in the Irish Sea between the island of Ireland and the rest of the UK, Wales, Scotland and England. And as various unionists and loyalists have said, their fear is that economic unification of the island of Ireland is the precursor, they fear, to political unification. Now for nationalists, so Irish nationalists, you think this would be quite a positive thing but they didn't really trust Boris Johnson because of what had gone before under Theresa May. And they felt that essentially what happened with the Brexit deal wasn't to placate them in terms of putting the border in the sea and special status for Northern Ireland within the EU. It was really just to please kind of hardline conservatives who were particularly you know, pro-Brexit in the UK mainland. And indeed we've seen some polls like a YouGov poll in 2019, Lord Ashcroft's poll 2019, they all showed that a majority of conservative voters wanted a harder form of Brexit, even if that meant Northern Ireland had to leave the UK. So Northern Ireland terms, essentially, the tensions over Brexit are about how it interacts and affects the border, and therefore the constitutional status of Northern Ireland. With Republic of Ireland's politics, you essentially have three, at the moment, three main parties. So the main parties uh, is a party called Fianna Gael. So for listeners, you would associate Fianna Gael probably with Leo Varadkar. You would have seen on television, he's been their leader. The current leader of the coalition government, which is essentially Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, and Ireland's version of the Green Party, is someone called Michal Martin, and he's the Taoiseach's Irish Prime Minister at the moment. He's the leader of Fianna Fáil. It's been a very popular party in Ireland over the last hundred years. And then you have Mary Lynn MacDonald leading Sinn Féin. So Sinn Féin stand for elections in UK uh, territories in terms of Northern Ireland and then in the Republic of Ireland. So as you can guess, Sinn Féin were anti-Brexit in Northern Ireland, so therefore as you can, listeners will guess, they were anti-Brexit in the Republic of Ireland. So that isn't particularly surprising. What's interesting with this is the two other parties of Fianna Gael, Fianna Fáil. So 
essentially just a very brief background with them. They're both center, center-right parties, very in favor of the European Union since Ireland went into the what was then called the European Economic Community in the 70s because it's really helped Ireland's like economic growth and you know kind of standing within Europe and influence with major powers within Europe such as Germany and France for example and the UK to an extent. So they see European Union as a very positive thing. In theory Fianna Gael, Fianna Fáil, um, they've, they emerged when Ireland separated from the UK in the 1920s onwards and they also therefore they are anti-partition as such, but not in the same way as Sinn Féin. I think that really their politics has been focused on 26 of the 32 counties of the island of Ireland, which is the Republic of Ireland. What's interesting here related to Brexit is, yeah, both parties, certainly for someone studying this, have become a lot more vocal about discussing the idea of Irish unification. And to the extent that, you know, even Fianna Gael and Leo Varadkar said that openly now, you know, I want to see Irish unification, I want to see a debate, I want to see a vote held in the future. And for someone studying that, and even for people listening to it, that's unusual. Like the Republic of Ireland, because of the conflict and knowing that unionists and loyalists were, you know, at times typically loyalists during the conflict were militantly against United Ireland. The Republic of Ireland government was very careful about saying anything related to the border, you know, kind of preempting border polls. The reasons why I think they've discussed that is... You, and, and maybe this is a bit of a cynical view, but mainly because of economic reasons, like it will massively impact the Republic of Ireland with trade going across the border. Um, I mean, it's been in a sense facilitated because Northern Ireland has that special status in the EU, so that helps to an extent, but also for the Republic of Ireland, it affects their trade with the UK mainland. So from their perspective, you know, anything that was going to make trade with the UK and Northern Ireland, a big market for their, their products and goods, and for their people to go across the work as well was always going to be something they were not keen on. So what's interesting there, and there's again a good phrase from uh, Anna Bryson, Kieran McAvoy's work at Queen's University Belfast and others from that report, you know, they said that Brexit is mainstreamed in the Republic of Ireland, the debate about Irish unification. So parties that weren't usually talking about it, so not just Sinn Féin are now talking about it. Um, yeah, so it's had an interesting effect on both sides of the borders and the similar thing, it's raised that constitutional question to the forefront again. We'll get on to unification in a bit, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the recent tensions that have happened in Derry and, and Belfast. You, you were talking about how the DUP and other unionists in Northern Ireland had voted for Brexit in order to create that hard border between uh, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, but it's actually backfired and you've ended up with a harder border in the Irish Sea. To what extent are those tensions that we've seen a consequence of Brexit? And to what extent are they a consequence of, of political disagreements between communities? You know, the, the, what happened with the leader of Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland, Michelle O'Neill, attending a, a large community funeral, for example. The tensions that have arisen there, and particularly recently, are because of, you know, the, the Democrat Unionist Party, the Unionist Party, uh, loyalist groups as well, if they stand in politics. When we say loyalists as well, essentially this means groups that during the conflict wanted to keep UK, uh, Northern Ireland in the UK, but might use armed methods of doing that. I think the key thing here is with loyalists and unionists that, yeah, with this um, former Republican prisoners funeral that essentially, yeah, they saw it as breaking COVID regulations and there was debate about that. So that would be one factor. Other factors, obviously, that, you know, from the kind of Republican nationalist viewpoint, they didn't like the the Democratic Unionist Party was in favour of Brexit because they thought it would be disastrous for Northern Ireland and particularly obviously for the people 
they largely represent in terms of Irish nationalist population, because it was not just trade, but it's going to disrupt people's sense of identity and uh, cross-border trade and relations, communal relations, etc. But I think the key thing here as well, particularly from a nationalist viewpoint, the reason Brexit kind of ignited things was because at that point in June 2017, when there was the election, when Theresa May came to power, the power sharing government in Northern Ireland had collapsed temporarily and it collapsed between top of my head, March 2017, right up to January 2020, so a long, long time. And one of, there's a couple of reasons for that, but the, a couple of the key ones were that Sinn Féin wanted an Irish language act, similar to like would have in Wales, uh, to represent people who speak uh, Irish in Northern Ireland and yeah, to provide them uh, rights within Northern Irish society. The DEP in particular opposed that because they said it was an attempt by Sinn Féin to have a cultural war against Britishness and to try and force like, Irish identity onto people in Northern Ireland who don't want it. So that was an impasse. There was a debate about an energy scandal. This was in the news quite a lot um, to do with wood pellet burners and people being able to burn them in empty sheds, etc. That had a friction between the DUP and Sinn Féin. And I think Brexit was, a, was part of this as well, those debates, the kind of three main areas that led to the breakdown. Because I think from Sinn Féin's perspective, they looked at it and didn't understand why the DUP were going to go forward with something that they thought was going to harm Northern Ireland community relations. But the other part in this, and I think was really key, in a sense, what gave momentum to this, in my like personal view and with evidence just from studying things the last couple of years, how the British government interacted with parties in Northern Ireland was kind of the you know the spark here that caused difficulties. And you can you can understand it partly from Theresa May's viewpoint that you need, you were short a majority, you needed to make the numbers up. But the danger of going in a, with a Democrat Unionist party, and there's two particular things. One is in the Good Friday Agreement and all the precursors to the Good Friday Agreement that were done in the 1990s to bring about an end to the conflict. The British government said, you know, we don't have any strategic or selfish interests in Northern Ireland. And our role is to uphold the majority consent in Northern Ireland, whatever that is about the border. So you can see the point by teaming up with one of the parties in the House of Commons, yeah, and in government Downing Street over such a major decision like Brexit, which was going to affect the border, that was going to cause repercussions and divisions in Northern Ireland. The double kind of difficulty that was caused was because the power sharing arrangement wasn't in place at that point, which, okay, you can say the British government, that's not their prime responsibility. But in a sense, they gave the Democratic Unionist Party a route out of having to go back to power sharing with Sinn Féin. So if you looked at it from a Democratic Unionist Party perspective at the time in 2017, it was a lot more attractive to get you know, money from Downing Street and influence on Brexit negotiations at the very heart of power in the UK and Westminster, rather than go back and a power sharing with a party that was asking you to do things you and your supporters didn't really want to do. So what I'm saying there is I think the difficulties and the reason it took on a, an extra momentum in Northern Ireland was because the British government, in a sense, you know, wasn't playing that kind of rigorously impartial to quote parts of the Good Friday Agreement role that they were supposed to play. And then you can see the flip side again with Boris Johnson. I mean, there could be an argument there to say that that was potentially a more rigorously impartial role by recognising that the majority of people in Northern Ireland voted Remain by putting the border in the sea economically. But the difficulty with that is that's not certainly how Irish nationalists view it. They just viewed it as, you know, as we talked about earlier, you know, what worked best for the Conservative Party at the time to get over the line. And now that's led to repercussions where the Democratic Unionist Party and some also Protestants feel, yeah, betrayed essentially 
by the government and it's caused a lot of friction. And it's it, particularly for the Democrat Unionist Party and loyalists, it's worth pointing out as a last point, you know, their fear is always that the UK government could just cut them loose and think, you know, we and this was always a fear during the conflict. And you can see that kind of behavior and interaction over Brexit has just reignited that fear. So yeah, it has consequences. There's various little things as we talked about that, you know, surmount into a larger disputes and questions because of the background, what's been going on with Brexit. So I would certainly say, yeah, there's always going to be, from what we can see since the peace processes, there will be disturbances and debates and disputes at certain times, but Brexit did give it this new momentum because it interacted with the border question. Whilst we're on the, the Democratic Unionist Party, they've sort of been the primary focus of the British media in relation to, to Northern Ireland in the last what, few months, few years, you could say. Would you be able to explain to our listeners exactly what has forced both Arlene Foster and Edwin Poots out of their leadership roles? Um, so essentially, we, um, listeners would have seen this, that there's been two leadership contests in the DEP this year. And essentially, why there's been disagreements and a bit of a internal strife, if you want to call it that, or civil war in the DEP, comes down to a few things. Disagreements, obviously, over Brexit and how that's been handled by the leadership and how they were working with Westminster over that. Relations with the Irish Republican Party, Sinn Féin, in Northern Ireland, be another area of dispute. And the third thing really is electoral performances uh, of the DUP and polls suggesting what might be heading for the DUP towards for the next year's assembly elections in Northern Ireland. So, you know, again, as a brief background, it's worth knowing, you know, the Democrat Unionist Party is a much more radical pro-British Protestant party in Northern Ireland. Uh, it was set up in the early 1970s. It used to be led by someone called uh, the Reverend Ian Paisley Senior, who was the founder of the party and was a free Presbyterian preacher as well, so a Protestant preacher in that particular part of Protestantism. And he had a deputy, Peter Robinson, who later then succeeded Ian Paisley as well. And what's, you know, to give you a context, like how unusual this is for the DUP to have that many leaders in such a short space of time, you know, if we look at Ian Paisley and put him with Pete Robinson, those two led the parties, either leader or deputy leader, right from, you know, the parts of the conflict from the early 70s up to 2015. And that's when Arlene Foster took over, who a lot of uh, listeners might well be more familiar with just from television coverage, particularly during the Brexit years. So Arlene Foster then led the party 2015, right up to this year. So the party in general is kind of, you know, its main kind of principles or the way it looks at politics is anti-Irish republicanism, anti-Irish unity, pro-Protestantism and pro-British union and particularly pro-British union. Now, the interesting point about this is where you've got these recent conflicts emerging, essentially what happened here is that various DEP members have been irritated about the Northern Ireland protocol, to put it lightly, in the Brexit agreement. Essentially, as we said, this is because of the Irish sea border economically in all but name now is between the island of Ireland and the UK, and that's because of the Brexit deal. So in a sense, you know, not officially, but Northern Ireland is now treated differently from the rest of the UK with its economic relationship with the EU. Now, for the party, they felt that, you know, Arlene Foster was seen as failing to prevent this and henceforth had to be removed because she wasn't opposing this Brexit deal being implemented and it was distancing Northern Ireland from the rest of the UK. So that's the kind of main ideology of the party. So obviously the, the backbenchers and other leading members of the party were not happy with this. The other thing here as well is the party didn't perform particularly well in the Westminster general election 2019 by their standards. So they've been winning the you know, majority of the Protestant Unionist British vote in Northern Ireland for quite a number of years now, since the early 2000s. And they still did do that, but they've there's been setbacks compared to what they were polling before. And they lost some major figures as well. So someone, 
your listeners might be uh, used to seeing on television, Nigel Dodds was an MP for them as a kind of key pro-Brexit supporter, like he lost his seat in that election. The other thing with the unionism and the DUP in particular, the recent polls in Northern Ireland, including by uh, one of the largest polling companies, Lucid Talk, they've been showing the DUP from late 2020 into early this year, 2021, uh, really losing votes in terms of what's happening in the polls to other unionist parties. And you can see that the party therefore, again, was in a sense in a panic that, look, we need to remove Foster because next year's assembly election, we could be in for a nightmare. And I think the key thing for them in their nightmare scenario is an Irish Republican to Sinn Féin first minister and Sinn Féin having the highest percentage of the vote. And the reason they would fear that is partly because, you know, the, the kind of cosmetics of that, you see that, you know, Sinn Féin, who are obviously in a sense anti-Northern Ireland is existing, therefore are then in charge of the Northern Ireland state. And the other reason that the DUP would fear this is because as an Irish Republican party, Sinn Féin, what they would worry about is it would help their argument to enact some kind of border poll and Irish unification uh, vote merging. So we then have a look at the actual disputes what happened and essentially Edwin Poots, who originally stood against Arlene Foster earlier this year, was definitely seen as more hardline on Brexit, hence why I got the support from the DUP uh, MPs and Ministers of Northern Ireland Assembly. He was against the Irish sea border and said he was against Sinn Féin, etc. things like the Irish Language Act. Why he was ousted does remain somewhat a bit, a bit of a mystery by someone called Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, who's a leading DUP MP, um, and the irony of this is Poots obviously originally beat Geoffrey Donaldson to become the leader uh, and now Geoffrey Donaldson's in charge. If we try and make sense of it from a couple of things we can see that's been happening, Poots essentially from what we seem to know was removed because another DUP debate is about, as we said, whether to implement this Irish Language Act, which they're not keen on because they think it's a way of Sinn Féin undermining Britishness. So, and we know this issue is super important because it was one of the reasons power sharing collapsed 2017 to 2020. Sinn Féin and Irish Republicans say, again, it's about respecting every people's different culture and rights. Uh, the DUP say, as I said, it's a Sinn Féin culture war to undermine Britishness. So Poots, uh, you know, rhetorically and certainly in public opposed it, but eventually decided from what we can see in private to agree to the act in order to get power sharing going again with Sinn Féin when he became leader. Now, the party said he didn't consult them and they opposed this and therefore he was basically forced out. And that was kind of Donaldson's route back to power. The thing about this, it's really unclear what Donaldson's gonna do about this because if he doesn't wanna back an Irish language act, he's gonna have the same problem as Sinn Féin that Poots faced and Arlene Foster faced in an early period because they're pretty resolute that there will be an Irish language act because this was promised in 98 and 2006 as part of peace agreement. So it has to be implemented. But the problem for Poots on the other hand then is since he technically got supported by the DUP, partly because he opposed Putin's acceptance that act, it's going to be interesting to see how he's going to navigate that course to try and get the power sharing going again. And as we said, you know, the, the polls also suggesting it's not in Donaldson's interest to go to the polls early in Northern Ireland because the DP at the moment is not looking like it's going to poll very well. So yeah, they're in a bit of a disarray at the second. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops. Putin's been what I think a lot of people over here uh, considered a rather strange decision in making Paul Gavant the first minister rather than himself. Did he explain why that happened? Yeah, that is a bit of a mystery. Um, I would say, so, you know, we can see obviously the party recognises that as a strange decision by the fact that Donaldson, and again, this is an interesting development in the moment that it sounds at the moment like Donaldson says he's going to, in a sense, resign from his MP seat 
and then try and get an MLA seat and take his place in Stormont. Again, there's a risk there for Donaldson, partly because, again, it's not guaranteed the DUP would get that MPC back at any by-election. So obviously the point there we can see is that obviously there's a bone of contention because the Donaldson's had to say that, although he hasn't implemented it yet. Essentially, I would imagine with this is that there would be a sense there maybe from Poots that if, and if we look at the Irish Language Act example here, that maybe he's thinking around this, and this is part of me trying to second guess what was going on, but I would imagine that he might afford if you had a different leader in place saying, well, look, we have to make this concession, we'll get concessions back with Sinn Féin, you know, this is one we have to give. If Poots was out the firing line and he wasn't the first minister, then he might have hoped he could have escaped some of the criticism of that and been able to kind of command the party support. That's what I imagine was the kind of thinking behind that. Um, the problem with that, and, you know, again, maybe it's a strategy that's actually partly, you know, makes sense. I can see the logic of doing that. The problem was, from what we can see, is the lack of consultation with the rest of the DUP's uh, ministers of Northern Ireland Assembly and MPs before doing that. And that, I mean, from what we know and what we've been told, that essentially is the problem. Uh, yeah, so it's difficult to know really uh, what the thinking was behind that. And it's also strange to the DUP, like, because historically, the difference to them, you know, for listeners is an interesting point. So, you know, what's the difference between the Democrat Unionist Party and the Ulster Unionist Party? Like, why have two parties? And in a sense, really, during the conflict, you know, the Ulster Unionist Party, when, you know, majority rule, so Protestant majority rule, as it used to be known in Northern Ireland, had devolution from 1922 onwards. It got stopped in 1972 because of the conflict, um, and it was seen as discriminatory against the Irish nationalist population. So, what was interesting then in the conflict, the old Unionist Party was always willing to have, in a sense, integration with the rest of the UK. Almost a situation like Wales and Scotland used to have. Okay, we won't have devolution. We'll just have discussions at Westminster, and our MPs will, you know, lobby for things that we think is an interest in Northern Ireland. In order, the UUP has changed its view now. Old Unionist Party. You know, but back then, in order to stop power sharing with Irish nationalists and in order to stop any cross-border bodies and relations with Republic of Ireland, where that government might have some at least consultative role in Northern Ireland, which they didn't want. The difference with the DUP, and this has always been interesting, is they're 100% pro-devolution. They do like devolution in Northern Ireland. And one of the reasons that is, is because, like, partly the reason they were set up and, in a sense, split, if you want, from the Ulsterners Party, is because their fear was that, like the Ulsterners Party didn't realise alongside the British government that the British government was going to pull away from Northern Ireland, was going to sell out the kind of loyal, loyalist people, and therefore they would end up being United Ireland. So, and that's partly when Ian Paisley Senior, as the DUP leader, went back into power sharing in 2007 with Sinn Féin, or the first time went into power sharing with Sinn Féin, that was one of their arguments that, you know, we don't want Westminster telling us what to do, and that actually it's important we protect people here. So what I'm saying with that, it, it's interesting with the DUP that, yeah, that the leader fought not to stand as the first minister because they do really hold Stormont and the devolved government as the kind of the place to be to govern Northern Ireland's affairs and to help, you know, navigate the path for them of ensuring that you stay in the union. So they do see it as super important. Donaldson's obviously recognised that. Yeah, so we'll see where that goes going forward. Well, that obviously means that the current first minister has probably been told, well, he has been told that he'll have to stand down. What impact will that have on the likelihood of the executive continuing? Is it just wait until Donaldson comes in next year? Or is it at some point Donaldson will try and force a move? And how likely does that make the continued existence of, of an executive in Northern Ireland? 
It's going to be difficult with the executive, but if we look at it again, if you look in the sense at the moment, the cards that Donaldson holds, which aren't that great, you know, he could stall making this decision about what do you resign as an MP and then stand as an MLA, uh, you know, similar to other parts of the UK because Northern Ireland bought uh, rules in, I think it was by the early 2010s that, you know, not to double jobs, you can't be an MP and an MLA. So he's going to have to make a decision over that. If he stalls, the, the question here is, is how long the Northern Ireland Secretary of State is going to allow that situation to continue? The recent record on that isn't necessarily um, offering much hope for people in Northern Ireland, but this fact that obviously during the May Brexit years, they just allow, you know, you have direct rules, so it goes back to London, but in that period, you know, various academics said it was basically like indirect, direct rule, because Theresa May didn't want to make any decisions that would irritate the DUP, which might lead them to pulling out of the confidence supply deal in Westminster. So you just had this kind of paralysis in Northern Ireland with no power sharing and not really any decisions being taken on major things, uh, which is bad for society there and bad for the economy, etc. Nonetheless, with this particular situation, you know, it's a risky game for Donaldson if he wants to do that, I would say, because obviously this particular British government doesn't rely on DUP votes. So the, the Secretary of State of Northern Ireland could just call elections. He can do that if there's not going to be a kind of functioning power sharing getting back together. And as we said earlier, you know, if you look at particularly the Lucid Talk polls now, which are the main polls in Northern Ireland, and if you, uh, listeners can have a look at these online if you're interested, you know, really since autumn last year onwards, the DUP has been dropping 6 7% at one point, you know, of its voting percentage. And the reason that's so significant, there's two reasons. One, because it's going to allow, at the moment, it looks like Sinn Féin to become the first minister, which, as we said, they don't want for the symbolic reasons and potentially, again, more arguments for Sinn Féin to go towards Irish unification polls. The second reason is the DUP is actually at risk. If you look at the percentage of uh, voting percentage at the moment, the Alliance Party, so the Alliance Party, a bit like the kind of Liberal Democrats in the UK, really, they're, they're fairly agnostic about the border issue. They'll look at it in terms of what's best for Northern Ireland economically, socially. At the moment, they're starting, you know, the, the latest loose support uh, talk poll top of my head, but I think they're about 16% of the vote the same as the DEP. So it's not even guaranteed that the DEP going to finish the second place. So how that relates to the question is, you know, with Donaldson, it, in a sense, he's boxed in here because if he if he decides to go to an election, the results might not be that good. And actually, you could see it from some perspective, it might make better sense to them, you know, if he goes into power, tries to build the rep DEP's reputation back with its kind of constituents community, and that might improve their vote next year. So, yeah, difficult scenario, and there's going to be decisions to make. But, you know, I, I think it's a risk. It's a difficult one for the DEP because at the moment when you look at it, the options don't look that appetizing. The one point with this and what we don't know again is, you know, sometimes in elections in Northern Ireland, when there's a prospect for unionist or loyalist community to see that Sinn Féin might get in, then they might come out and back one party. And we, we saw that because, as I said, during the conflict, the Ulster Unionist Party, the more moderate one, used to dominate. And really then what happened is people were disgruntled about how they were handling the decommissioning of Irish Republican Army weapons during the early part of the peace process, early 2000s. What then happened is that the Unionists and Protestant community basically majority backed the DUP. So the scales just tipped the other way. And the logic for that is they don't want to have a situation where you have like three or four unionist parties all contesting the seat. You split the vote, Sinn Féin get in, and Sinn Féin get more candidates elected. So yeah, a sense it's a difficult decision for them. But what, the point here is we don't know like whether 
the prospect of Sinn Féin winning the vote might actually make those opinion polls potentially inaccurate and they might swing back to the DUP. But yeah, it's going to be difficult to Donaldson unless there's a kind of reputation building with unionist community to heal wounds there and try and get their support back. Well, the Sixth Assembly is, is the first without a unionist majority, isn't it? And like we've been talking about now, you see that the unionist voice is, is splintering off, people going to go vote for traditional unionist voice and maybe going back to the UUP if they're a bit more moderate. But how unlikely would it be that there's going to be a, a nationalist majority in Stormont? And what would it mean for Northern Ireland to have that first nationalist majority? There's two sides to this. So if you look at it as the years go on, if, as we talked about that Queen's University Belfast, um, you know, Brexit law report about Brexit from a couple of years back said, if you look at those statistics at primary school level, you know, the second is looking somewhat inevitable that not necessarily to say we'll definitely get, you know, United Ireland if a border poll is held, but that we're going to end up with a situation where there's an, some kind of Irish nationalist youth majority that's going to grow up in the electorate because that's what we're seeing at primary school level. Now, again, I think if we, from a UK head and context, if you're in England, Scotland, and Wales, you might think, well, but, you know, young people grow up, they change their mind politically. The, you know, that argument doesn't really, from what we've seen so far anyway, reflect in Northern Ireland because of the conflict and the, you know, divisions over the past and divisions over ethno-nationalist identity and the UK's role in Ireland, whether that's right, etc. What that means is people don't transfer their vote between, say, like DUP and Sinn Féin, like that just basically doesn't happen. They don't transfer their vote either from, say, the more moderate Irish nationalist parties, it would have been seen in the conflict, something called the Social Democratic Labour Party to the Ulsterunist Party. Previous leaders of those two, what are seen as the more moderate parties there, have said in the past, like, for example, I think it was in the 20, 2015 assembly election or 2016, I can't remember the top of my head. But what their leaders were saying is transfer your votes to us, put SDLP, Irish Nationalist Party one, UUP second, and they just plummeted their percentage of the vote. So it's quite clear that people who are backing nationalism and unionism in Northern Ireland, which is the majority electorate, not all of them, but it is the majority, are not going to transfer their votes. So what that means is I would say with the next assembly election, with the demographics as they are, and they are changing, as we said, there certainly probably isn't going to be a unionist majority. In fact, it looks like the unionist vote, as you rightly said, with a traditional unionist voice, which was anti-DUP going to power sharing with Sinn Féin in 2006-07. So, you know, that's going to make power sharing almost impossible, I would say, um, if that party did emerge as the victors. I mean, strange things have happened, but from looking at it, what the leader says, it doesn't look very promising for power sharing. But... The key point with that is, you know, it doesn't look like they've got the numbers to put their vote back at the majority. So if we, what happened last time as well, essentially in 2017 is, yeah, the nationalist numbers have gone up. And then what you've also got now, I said that kind of, you know, at the moment, second joint place, the Alliance Party, the kind of Liberal Party, would have used to be seen as kind of Liberal Unionist, but there are some nationalists who back it as well. When we look at the statistics who votes for uh, the Alliance Party, and that adds this other dimension in as well, because of, as we said, over things like the border poll, that's going to be more based about, you know, what works economically for Northern Ireland. And you can see alliance voters might be swung. But when you add that in, you know, you could have, you know, pushing up in the 40s now, percents of nationalist voters going up and up and up, the unionist ones coming down. And then this kind of the, the middle ground, if you like, the alliance party that has a massive effect then on like the control of things and what happens. And to give you a kind of precursor to, how this works. I mean, in the early 2010s, um, there was protest at Belfast City Hall, 
which is the council there, was about um, that Sinn Féin and the SCLP, the two nationalist parties, said they thought it's a shared city, so we don't fly the Union Jack every day anymore over Belfast City Hall. Unionists obviously heavily opposed this and said it was an attempt to, again, republicanise Northern Ireland in terms of Irish Republic. The Alliance Party held the kind of deciding votes on this and they decided, no, we think the Nationalists are right, that, you know, in line with the rest of the UK, on designated days, the Union Jack will fly over the City Hall. But it is a shared city, so it shouldn't, you know, be flown every day. And there was obviously Unionists and Loyalist protests after that that were quite vocal, but they didn't change the decision. So what I'm saying there, again, when you look at the arithmetic, if you look at it from a Unionist perspective, and even the things we've heard from the DUP, like, you know, we need to stop the protocol, we need to stop the Cyrus Sea border, it's very difficult to see how they're going to get the numbers to do that. And particularly when we consider, again, there's large elements of the UUP who don't like the protocol as it's been implemented, but they did, or at least a sizable minority of elements, I should have said, in the UUP, who didn't back Brexit. And as you said, 66% of British Protestants, as an estimate, backed Brexit. So there's others who did not do that. So as it goes back to that point, it, it, it's looking difficult for those who want to implement that vision you know, of kind of DUP-led Northern Ireland or a Northern Ireland doesn't have this protocol and is stronger in the UK, it's going to be quite difficult to do that. So, yeah, it'll be interesting next election to see how that develops again, arithmetic and what happens. Obviously, Sinn Féin are doing quite well for themselves in the Republic of Ireland also. You know, had they stood more candidates at the last election, there's a chance they, they may have won outright, even though they have the joint highest amount of seats now. In the next Irish parliamentary elections, say if Sinn Féin were to be able to form a government, and the Nationalists had a majority in Stormont too. Just how likely do you think that would make Irish unification? And also on that, what do you think the Unionist reaction would be to um, a Sinn Féin government in both Northern and the Republic of Ireland? There's a couple of sides to this. So I think if we talk about with Northern Ireland, what could be forthcoming then in the polls there and how this is going to relate to Republic. So as we said, the polls are suggesting Northern Ireland, like Lucid Talk, one of the largest polls, you know, we're probably in store for another historical vote in Northern Ireland next time. And just even in terms of seeing an Irish Republican Party top the poll for the first time in voting percentage terms. I mean, you know, and to give people context with that, but, you know, Sinn Féin was outlawed in Northern Ireland until 1974 because of links to Irish Republican Army and the conflict there um, at that point. So, you know, they weren't allowed to, in a sense, stand candidates under that banner. And then, you know, fast forward what are we now, like 40, 50 plus years, and then you could be the leader in the Northern Ireland Parliament. So that was, you know, historically, when we put it in that context and alongside the contemporary politics, is a major shift. The key thing here with this as well, in one sense, in Northern Ireland, with Sinn Féin, it is partly cosmetic because of how power sharing works is you have a first minister and a deputy first minister, and one has to be from one of the communities and one has to be from the other community. So in some sense, like cosmetically, it doesn't really matter if you have a Sinn Féin, you switch the roles, you know, have a Sinn Féin first minister, DUP deputy first minister, or vice versa. But as we said, and, and exactly the question you asked, we've seen in March 2017, the unionist majority in Stormont, you add all the unionist parts together, is gone. So that's a worrying trend for, for unionism. You know, the polls at the moment generally show that in Northern Ireland itself, there still is a majority of staying in the Union at, at this second, but it is coming down. But there have been other polls, for example, 2019, Lord Ashcroft did a poll, and he found when you take out the don't knows in Northern Ireland, it was almost 50-50 about, you know, if there was a border poll tomorrow, how would you vote? And I think, you know, that, that again presents a difficult situation because if the polls are getting closer and closer under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement, when there's shown a clear current trend in polls, 
this isn't really spelled out actually, which was a kind of a, an interesting point about the Good Friday Agreement. The Secretary of State of Northern Ireland has to call a vote, but yeah, um, that isn't exactly clear how that's going to happen at this moment. But you can see, so by that monitor, you can certainly see if Sinn Féin get into power in Northern Ireland, there isn't that unit's majority more, they'll make the argument straight away again, right, there needs to be a border poll at the very least. If we then switch our attention to the Republic of Ireland, yeah, as you were saying, what's interesting there from the election, gosh, pre-COVID last year now, um, January 2020, Sinn Féin won the highest percentage of the, the vote, the first preference vote there. Northern Ireland Works um, and People and Wales be similar with that, you know, by a slightly different system, so proportional representation. So um, you kind of rank people first, second, third, fourth. Um, yeah, so the key thing with this is that Sinn Féin won the large percentage of the vote. And as you said, they just didn't run enough candidates because you can essentially, as listeners will know, you can have second, third, fourth place elected. And they didn't think they were going to do that well, so they were quite surprised. They generally only won one candidate. If it had been first past the post, it would have been very worrying for the other parties because Sinn Féin would have literally just swept the boards across the Republic of Ireland by one or two seats. That wasn't the case, so it meant the other parties, as we said, Fianna Gael, Fianna Fáil, and the Green Party were able to get a coalition together to keep Sinn Féin out of power because Sinn Féin and the kind of other, le other left-wing parties were not able to put a coalition together. Recent polls in the Republic of Ireland are showing that Sinn Féin's percentage of the vote is holding up, if not in some age groups, it's increased. The Fianna Fáil party, who's been led at the moment, Michal Martin, are not doing very well, suggesting polls. Whether that will all transfer to then Fianna Gael and then they can maybe keep out Sinn Féin in that way, we don't know. But the, the fact of the matter, I think, with this is that, yes, if they get into government in the Republic of Ireland, that then, you know, adds this just complete new dimension to it because the co-guarantors of the Good Friday Agreement, the British government and the Irish government. So you'd have in Northern Ireland, the first minister, which could be Sinn Féin saying, we want a border poll and other nationalist parties, other minor nationalist parties in there saying that as well, like this SCLP. Then you'd have the Irish government saying, yeah, we want a border poll as well, because it's, it would be led by Sinn Féin. So it puts the British government in a difficult position, it puts unions in a very difficult position. And I think the other parts of that, even if Sinn Féin continue to do well in the elections, Republic of Ireland, like I said, you know, that's quite unique and different at the moment when Leo Varadkar is a Fine Gael leader, and not specifically about Varadkar, but Fine Gael leaders since, you know, the 70s, really with the conflict, they generally focused on, let's get peace in Northern Ireland, and, you know, generally don't keep bringing up the thing about unification and border policy because it's divisive and it alienates unionism. So kind of, you know, kind of a respect and coexistence across the island is what Sinn Féin, uh, Fine Gael, sorry, focused on. But what's interesting is said recently, partly because of the Sinn Féin vote, is that Fine Gael now are saying themselves in Bradford, yeah, do you know what, we'd like to see United Ireland, we need to have these discussions, we need to see where this goes. They haven't been as vocal as Michal Martin's party in saying, don't hold a divisive vote now. I mean, it's not like they want it right now, but at the same time, Bradford's shown more willingness to discuss it and bring it to the table and give his own personal view. So the point I'm making there is the impact that Sinn Féin is having in the Republic of Ireland Again, it goes back to that word, they're bringing it to the forefront, that, that question of Irish unification. It doesn't mean Irish unification necessarily guaranteed to happen, but the border poll is looking more and more likely because if you've got parties, not just Sinn Féin now, lobbying for this, then it's going to be difficult for other parties to reject something that's obviously certainly not unpopular with the electorate as it stands. I think the other thing with this as well that's interesting, as you would know, is that when there's a border poll, as it's held, basically an Irish unification or reunification referendum, what happens is Northern Ireland and Republic vote on the same day, but they vote separately but concurrently. So they both have to agree to it. 
what's also a concern for unionism is, you know, polls by RTE, TG Caha, which is the Irish language channel, uh, and various polling companies in Republic of Ireland the last couple of years, it, it's always showed that the majority of the people in the Republic of Ireland want Irish unification. Um, there is a few polls that have showed they're not keen on the cost element of that, about what would happen and the cost would probably have to take on. But the actual principle of it, yes, um, they seem happy to do. So again, it raises that thing. It's a difficult situation for unionism because particularly with Sinn Féin's attempts to get into power in Dublin, that adds this other element. Um, yeah, and it will be then interesting because the British government will get involved because in a sense, the British government will be holding the referee in this to an extent um, and whether they're able to do that as we've seen in the last couple of years when relations with them aren't that great between the DUP British government and then Sinn Féin the British government obviously remains to be seen so yeah it looks um interesting years ahead what's gonna happen let's end with a, a hypothetical co-guarantor then Northern Ireland's place in the union has been uh, the focus of Westminster politicians this week with, uh, with, with last week with Keir Starmer visiting uh, Northern Ireland he was asked about a hypothetical border poll, uh, and he said that he would campaign for Northern Ireland to remain part of the United Kingdom if he were Prime Minister, even though Labour's sister party, the SDLP, would likely be campaigning for reunification. So what was your assessment of that statement and his reasons for saying it? I would say with that, it was aimed at an audience, and the audience, I would say, was probably in England, essentially, to try and win folks back there, but it potentially could have been aimed at Wales and Scotland. I think Scotland, I don't think people in Labour, you know, have got any inkling that they're going to suddenly claw back loads of percentage of the vote away from the SNP. So I think we can rule that out. In Wales, we know, you know, with politics here and with your, your series of talks, everything that, you know, all the contributions you have say that the Labour Party has different discussions about constitution in Wales. It's, it's you know, so I think that would be another aspect of ruling out. So, okay, so why is it playing in the sense of the gallery in England? Because, yeah, about like keeping the union together. That's obviously a popular thing at the moment, currently in England, even if England's visions of the union might be different to what other unionists might have in other parts of the UK. But I think the, the really important thing here for Keir Starmer was to, again, not appear what he might see as, you know, out of sync with being pro-British, pro-UK because it would have given another, you know, rod uh, for Boris Johnson, the Conservative kind of campaigning team to say, hey, look, here's another Jeremy Corbyn who wants to sell out Northern Ireland to the Republic, he's anti-UK. So I'd imagine that really would have been the kind of root of it. What's interesting with that is, yeah, as we said, that there is probably less so now, but certainly as the conflict was on and then years before that, because of um, Irish immigration into the UK, et cetera, there would have been a lot of Labour voters who'd be an Irish background so that's why it's in a sense cause a bit of debate within the party about you know the merits of that approach probably that's just the case that for generational reasons that's not as pressing as it was so there's probably strategic calculation as well that hey we might lose some votes by saying this but not as heavy as maybe the impact which Kirstama might think that they could if he comes out as like pro-united Ireland and it's just another easy in a sense target for Boris Johnson that to say look he's anti-UK he's anti-Britain so I'd imagine that was probably the thinking behind it. I don't think um, in terms of say like the SCLP, I think it's an interesting point you raised. Yeah, that might be a slight issue. I, I think for the SCLP, who obviously take seats in Westminster, the party, you know, wouldn't have been that impressed with the stance with Corbyn's government about what's happening over Brexit because, of, you know, they were having internal debates rather than maybe backing 
SCLP Northern Ireland about what's happening with Brexit, etc. So I think there would have been perhaps a little bit more distancing between them and Labour in those years anyway. Yeah, I think for parties like Sinn Féin, in contrast, that, you know, they'd have some cordial relations to an extent with the Labour Party, but there'd always be a distance because of wanting, you know, ultimately Ireland to reunify and maybe, you know, and because of the conflict the Labour Party was in power in certain years in the 70s under Harold Wilson and obviously Tony Blair. So, you know, Sinn Féin wouldn't particularly, I would imagine, be upset that a Labour person said that because I think they'd partly expect that. And, you know, if we go back again, like for history and the peace process years, you know, Tony Blair said uh, similar things in going to the peace agreement in 98. I mean, he said that, look, we're not going to see United Ireland in my lifetime, is one of the things he said, which again was probably just at that point partly a clever device to try and get unionism on side to back the Good Friday Agreement, like, hey, there's a lot of concessions you might have to make here, but I'm telling you, don't worry about the unification thing because it's not going to happen. So essentially, I don't think it would have thrown any surprises, probably for the SCLP as well, but certainly for Sinn Féin, it wouldn't have done so. But yeah, it, and it's interesting when you look at UK politics as how Starmer's trying to, in a sense, stop any of these avenues of Boris Johnson portraying him in, uh, and just kind of anti-UK overall. Uh, but yeah, it'd be interesting to see if they stick to that as years go ahead. For, for me, a lot of the reason why he said that he would be uh, against unification and pro-union, he, he, you know, he made a big point of saying he's pro-union, is it, he's thinking more about how that plays to a Scottish ear than it would ever play to an ear in, in Derry or Belfast. I think, yeah, precisely, I think so. I don't think it was you know, a device that if he's ever short of majority he might be looking for the DUP or the UUP to prop up a Labour government. I just, and also if they were short of majority that in Westminster at any point for Starmer, they're probably gonna have to rely on support from the SDLP who are gonna be a lot more loyal to Labour just because of past relations over the years. If they try and like balance the SDLP, DUP, et cetera, it just wouldn't work anyway. And um, for the reasons, because you'll then get the kind of disputes back in Northern Ireland in this kind of competence supply deal. I mean, it was difficult enough for the DUP and the Conservatives, let alone trying to put SCLP, DUP, Labour, maybe Liberal Democrats together, it's probably not going to work. But I think, yeah, exactly. And I think it was exactly that point. It was aimed at unionists in the UK who might be floating voters. When I say UK, I mean UK mainland, so essentially England, probably Wales as well, and, and Scotland in mind. But I would still probably say more specifically England because, you know, Starmer realised that with the electoral arithmetic that that's where... Westminster elections are going to be won essentially there so I think that's probably what it was in the sense playing to the gallery of that yeah and to try and stop that kind of any avenue where Boris Johnson can say oh hang on this person's anti-UK and this is you know the things they say about Northern Ireland show this yeah and I, I think you're right I don't think it was interacting with unionism in Northern Ireland because you know the Labour Party um, certainly with the DUP on various like social ethical things will have completely opposing views of DUP so, and obviously over Brexit, et cetera, they definitely didn't see eye to eye in the last few years. So I don't think that would have been a concern to them at all. So I think it was in a sense for that kind of internal audience in England in particular that was aimed at. Almost it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. If people want to hear more from you, um, where can they find you on Twitter? Uh, they can find me on Twitter as uh, at Thomas DM Leahy. Thank you very much, Thomas. Um, if you've enjoyed what you've heard tonight, please don't forget to find us on Medium at Hero Blog Cymru, on Facebook at Hero Blog Cymru, and on Twitter at Hero Blog. Thank you for listening to Hero. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review.